Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, and per every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. There is one question that you answer hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. If you're a parent, there's actually two questions. The first one is why. And the second one that we all answer all the time is, what do I want? You might walk to the refrigerator, and if you're like me, you'll open the door and then ask the question, what do I want? You might be turning on the TV and you ask the question, what do I want? Even when you just wake up, what do I want? Every time you look at your phone, what do I want? We ask and answer this question so many times. It is the question that actually guides our lives. Because the reality is that with very few exceptions, unless you're under compulsion by one way or another, you do exactly the thing that you want to do all of the time. Now, you might argue with me and say, you know, I'd rather be lying on a beach in Aruba. And you know, me too. But the reality is, you will never be able to afford to lay on a beach in Aruba all the time. And so, you do the thing that you want to do, which is go to work, make the money, to feed your family so that you can continue to do the things that you want to do. Given the options available to you at each individual moment, you do the thing that you want to do. Most people think that they do the things that make the most logical sense. Like I weighed all of the options in my mind and I came to the conclusion that this was the most rational and the most logical one. But friends, that simply is not true. I wish I could say that our brains are in charge, but the reality is, is that our hearts are in charge. We do the things, not that we think are the most reasonable, that we think are the best, or we'd all be marathon runners this morning. We do the things that our hearts want the most, which is why Flaming Hot Cheetos are still sold so much. I love what first century Roman poet Ovid, not COVID, Ovid, once said. He said, I am dragged along by a strange new force. Desire and reason are pulling in different directions. And I see the right way and approve it, but follow the wrong. Do you hear what he's saying? It might sound reminiscent to Romans chapter 7, where Paul says, I do the things I do not want to be doing. Is anybody there this morning? Have you ever done the things that you do not want to be doing? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you've been at the church for a little while, 
You might, you might recognize this illustration. You might be familiar with it. But for some of us, it, it might be new. Back in 2010, uh, the social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, whose name I've learned how to pronounce since the last time I gave this illustration, wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, why, why, people disagree, why Good People Disagree on Religion and Politics. It's a fantastic book. I would highly recommend you read it. He is an atheist Jewish person. He is not a Christian whatsoever. But his insight into why we do the things that we do is unparalleled in many, many uh, places that I've seen. And he gives this illustration for why people do the things that they want to do. And what he says is that we have two things that live within us. We have an elephant and a rider. And the elephant is our intuition. The elephant is our desire. It's our want. It's our gut feeling. We do the things we want. We say the things we want. It's the way that we feel about things. It's this intuitive gut to each and every one of us. And then the rider is sitting on top of the elephant. And the rider is your mind. It's your ration. It's your reason. And the rider likes to think that he is in control of the elephant. But friends... No one is in charge of an elephant. No one. They might think that they're riding the elephant, telling the elephant where to go, but the reality is the elephant goes wherever the elephant wants to go, and then the rider is left to make excuses for where the elephant went. So the, the elephant mar might march through some bushes, and the rider would then say, oh, yes, well, the bushes were the most logical place for us to walk through because, you see, there was a wall over there. And it would be too far to walk in this direction. So that's why we went through the bushes. And so the rider is constantly, he's like the press secretary for the, for the uh, elephant. He's always explaining why the elephant is doing the things that he's doing. Friends, you do the things that your heart wants. You might have a logical reason for it, but honestly, deep down as you examine the things that you do in life, the reality is you do what you want to do. Your desires are in charge. What you want controls how you live. That's what James is teaching us today. What you want controls how you live. James is giving us a master's level course on the way that the heart functions. He's giving us a spiritual A and P course this morning. And so I want to dive into your spiritual AMP. Why do you want the things that you do? What does the things that you what does what you want? How does that guide what you do? I want you to see your own hearts and examine it before the Lord and to consider how to live righteously before him. So today's sermon is called Spiritual AMP. We're going to look at two points from it. First, the anatomy of temptation, and second, the physiology of God's generosity. First, the anatomy of temptation, second, the physiology of God's generosity. Number one, the anatomy of temptation, or what makes temptation? What makes it up? Verse 13, this is what James says. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, last week, uh, we talked about trials. We talked about what trials are and that they're these outside forces that make our life more difficult. So, suffering is a form of trial. And everybody will face trials in their life. Everyone will go through suffering. 
And what our trials actually do, we've learned, is that they actually cause us to trust in God more and ourselves less. Our trials teach us to trust in God more and ourselves less. So we learned as a result of that, that sometimes God sends trials into our lives, or he at least allows trials into our lives. And so then the logical question is, what about temptations? These inward desires, these things going on in me. And what James says is, God allows the trials, but do not start accusing him of the temptations. That's what he's getting after. That's the logic that's happening here. He says, do not confuse your trials and your temptations. God might give you trials, but he does not give you temptations. Although God allows the trials, he'll never tempt us. It's not in his nature. We can't blame God for our temptation or sin. And then James says, where do your temptations come from? And he breaks it down. Verse 14, look with me. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I want to talk about this word desire for just a minute. Everybody say that word with me, desire. This word for desire is epithumia in the Greek, epithumia. And there's other, word, other places where this word appears in the scripture. I'll probably cover it multiple times. I've probably covered it in the past. If you're here, I might have hit it before. But epithumia, another way that you can translate epithumia is not with the word desire, but with the word lust. And epithumia is not just a desire, but it's an over-desire. It's an over-desire. It's a lust of life. Friends, when we think about sinning, we usually think about a list of bad things not to do. But what James is doing here is he's changing our categories for sin. And he's saying sin is not just when you do bad things, but sin comes from an over-desire for things that are morally neutral or perhaps even good. That's what he's saying, is that your temptations occur when you are lured and enticed by your own desires, by your own over-desires, your own lusts. Not necessarily just for bad things, but for anything. The essence of sin is not doing bad things. It's not merely that, but it's wanting potentially good or morally neutral things too much. We're a church that exists to help religious and irreligious people to become gospel people. And the religious people like to give you a list of things to do and not to do. This list of, of do's and don'ts. And religion teaches if you do the things you're supposed to do and you don't do the things you're not supposed to do, then you'll be okay. And in fact, if more people would just do the right things, then our civilization would be better and we'd all be okay. But friends, the reality is, is that the heart will take even good things and desire them to an excess that causes even good things to become bad things. Chocolate is a wonderful thing, but eating three pounds of chocolate is a bad, bad thing. From my experience, here's the reality. There are very few people who just want to do bad things. There's a few psychopaths out there, but the reality is most of the people that you and I cross paths with, that we walk by, Christian, not Christian, they usually want good things. 
but it's when those good desires get out of control. Let me give you a few examples. If you over-desire success, you'll work yourself to death and neglect your family. If you over-desire love, you'll suffocate every relationship with your clinginess and expectations. If you over-desire beauty, you'll spend far too much of your money on gym memberships and beauty supplies, only to watch yourself die a thousand deaths as you age slightly slower than your friends. If you over-desire financial security, you'll stay up late into the night making your, balance, making your budget balance, putting pressure on your spouse to spend less on certain items, and you'll toy with the idea of cutting your generosity in half while doubling your contributions to your 401k. Do you see how good desires, when left unchecked, can lead you to bad places? And friends, those are just mild examples. When you look at more serious examples here, all major sins start with a mere idea. Every murder started with someone in their heart just feeling a little angry or slighted with someone else. And that was left unchecked. Every good story utilizes this idea to help you to resonate with the bad guys. You see, a good story, any story, you resonate with the good guys, but a good story, you resonate with the bad guys because you understand their motivation and you recognize that everybody is this mixed bag of motivation. You can feel compassion for even the villain in a good story. That's what makes stories like Breaking Bad so enticing, so interesting. You resonate with the main characters, and you see that their desires, they're not bad things that they want, but they take them to bad places. And that is true for each and every one of us. The power of our desires can carry us away. And so that's what James is teaching when he says, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I think that the, that the language that he chooses to use here is important and helpful because he chooses to use language uh, from what he is familiar with, which is fishing. I, I myself am uh, familiar with fishing. My grandfather, who was a human AMP professor, uh, went fishing every morning, or still goes fishing every morning, for the past, like, 70 years. And he uh, did that the entire time he was teaching in the university. He'd wake up at 4 a.m., drive his boat to the lake, go fishing for a few hours, catch what we call a mess of fish, and then bring them home, clean the fish, get them ready to eat, and then get dressed, showered and dressed, and ready for his 8 a.m. class. That was his daily schedule. And I can tell you from visiting with them and going with them fishing many times that you don't fish by just throwing a hook in the water. You have to get that hook dressed up. You put bait on the hook. You hide the hook completely so that when the fish takes the hook, you can set the hook and you can drag it into your boat. And that's what James compares temptation with. 
He says that our temptations come when, we, when we're lured and enticed. These words, it's like we see the bait and we go in. And when it says that we're enticed, that means that we're being dragged away. And who is actually dragging us when we get up out of the water and we've been dragged away by our own sin, but we see our own desires holding the fishing pole. And we only have ourselves to blame. He is saying you cannot put God at the end of that fishing pole. You need to put yourself there and see that it's your own desires. Chris Lungard uh, wrote this really helpful book, uh, just a, a kind of a formational book in my life, called The Enemy Within. And it's kind of a summary of some of John Owen's mortification of sin work. But it, it's a really short and helpful book. And this is what he says. He says, temptation starts in your imagination, helping you to see the juicy possibilities Remember how your manager fired you not two weeks after giving you that glowing performance review? Imagine how gratifying it would be to help him suffer a little. Wouldn't it ease your rage to take your utility knife to his valve stems so he wakes up to four flat tires on the morning he's supposed to be meeting, uh, be at a meeting with a vice president of research? Or how about a little note to his wife, cluing her in to what he, her hubby really does on those business trips? You look at this person, what did this person want? Justice. But this desire for justice lured them and drugged them away to where they're imagining bad things. Your desires will carry you away because your desires become the thing that you worship. Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Your God is the thing that controls your behavior. So let me ask you again, church, what do you want? What is the thing that is guiding your behavior? What is the thing that guides how you live your life, how you respond to people. Have your desires become disordered? Not only have they, but how have they? The reality is, is that our heart is an idle factory. We're constantly finding new things to want, new things to desire. And the reality is, church, we're all in this together. If you're feeling seen at the moment, look to your neighbors and know that they're feeling seen as well. Because we all have these deep desires that live within us that lead us to dark places. In Greek, in Greek mythology, there are these creatures called sirens. Anybody familiar with sirens? They're uh, these kind of uh, uh, supposedly beautiful women. They're oftentimes depicted as with, with having wings that live on a rocky island. And the sirens, they sing, and as they sing, they draw sailors in to their rocky shores, and everyone dies as they get called toward the siren. And so as sailors would go past the sirens, they would start to hear the call, and the boat would just start to shift toward the siren singing. And many of the men, as they hear the sirens singing, they, they start to lose their mind, and they want nothing more 
than to hear that song more clearly. And so what starts off as a faint song, it becomes stronger and stronger until the sailors of the boat are all jumping out of their ships and swimming toward, toward the sirens. They see the lifeless bodies of those who have gone before them, but they do not care. They want what they want, and their desires are out of control. This is how temptation starts. This is how temptation works. And that's why in verse 15, he says, desire, when it, has give, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All sin starts small. All sin starts small. No one wakes up one day and says, you know what? I'm going to wreck my marriage and have an affair. No, it starts small. Someone starts to appreciate you more than what you might feel appreciated at home. And the seed is there, and it grows until it becomes overwhelming. And it doesn't just lead you to, to sin, but sin, left unchecked, leads you to death. Death, it'll kill you. That is the anatomy of temptation. That's how it works. Let's talk about the physiology of God's generosity or how God's generosity functions to counterweight the anatomy of temptation. This is the counter to the anatomy of temptation. Verse 16, he says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We blame God sometimes for our sin. We are and when we blame God for our sin, we are deceived about the very nature of who God is. God does not give us temptations. So James tells us that God, what God does give us. He says, he, he's not giving you those temptations. Here's what he gives us. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, he's writing uh, in the original Greek. This is very poetic, and it's actually like a really common way to write uh, a, a poetic statement in the Greek. And so if we were all original Greek readers, it wouldn't feel so awkwardly worded. But here how he's saying it. He's saying, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What he's saying is God doesn't give you temptations, but God is generous. He gives you not temptations, but good gifts and perfect gifts. He is generous with you. And when you believe that he's not generous with you, you're buying a lie. Temptation says you do not have enough. You need more. Listen to your desires. Give in to them. Get a little bit more. But James is reminding us that God is not stingy with you. We like to view God like he's a billionaire and we live in his guest room and he chooses to put single-ply toilet paper in his guest room because he doesn't care about us. But he loves us and he is generous with us. He gives us good and perfect gifts. And when we are in temptation, we need to be reminded of this. This is your weapon against temptation. My God is generous, and I have all I need in him. I will not let my desires control me. My God is generous, and I have all I need in him. If you believe it, say it this morning. My God is generous. He's abundantly generous. And then it explains how he is generous. Verse 18, of his own will, 
he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is getting at the heart of why any of us are here and why we become Christians. It's not because we just want God, but of his own will, he has changed our desires. And how has he changed our desires? But he has brought us forth by the word of truth. He is singing a better song over us. He is giving us deeper desires and showing us something even more beautiful to pursue than what all of our desires tell us to pursue. You see, our desires are dim shadows of the ultimate desire that we have in God. God is generous because he has brought us forth by his word of truth, and he has given us life. We deserve death because that is what our temptations lead us to our sins, and our sins lead us to death. But God, those temptations, they drag us toward death. But God brings us forth by his word of truth. Isn't that a good, uh, a good uh, uh, counterbalance to that? Last week, I shared a hymn by John Newton. And I have another John Newton quote for us this morning. Listen to what John Newton said. This is the author of uh, Amazing Grace and many other hymns that we've sung. Are not you amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor, that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Friends, God's love is an ocean without border or bottom. God's generosity is as boundless and as expansive as God himself. Because he's chosen, chosen to give us life in him. We get to delight in him. And it says in the last half of verse 18 that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. What this is talking about is that ultimate day when one day the whole world will be remade and that God will come again, Christ will come again to make the world new. And in that day, there will be no need to have an over-desire. There'll be no need to to sin. There'll be no temptation because we'll feel absolutely content and complete with what he has given us. In that day when the world is made new, as we live with God throughout eternity in heaven, there will be no sin, but our hearts will feel completely satisfied. All the things that we long for will grow dim because of what we will have. Our desires will be satisfied all the time. We won't be dragged away by temptation because it won't exist. We'll be with our Father, and He'll give us whatever we need. And in today, we have access into that as we are the first fruits of His new creation. That's what it's talking about. There is a day when we will experience this fully, but today we enjoy the first fruits of it. And we're reminded of these eternal realities that our God is generous and he has given us everything we need. And we can say no to our own desires and no to our own sin and yes to God. You know, with those sirens, there's two stories from ancient Greek mythology uh, that I want to share about the sirens. And the first one is from Homer's Odyssey. 
where the hero Odysseus is warned of how dangerous the sirens are. But Odysseus, he wants to hear the song. He knows that they're dangerous, but he wants to hear the song. So he fills his crew's ears with wax so they can't hear anything. And he commands them to tie him up to the mast so they can sail right by the sirens. And as they sail by the sirens, Odysseus, he starts to go mad with desire. And he starts screaming, telling his crew, turn, go to the sirens. I need the sirens. Take me there. But they ignore his demands because they all have their ears filled. And they know that he is a madman. He is crazy. He is wanting sure death for all of us. And nearly drives him completely insane. That is how resisting our own temptations by ourselves feels. We feel as though we are tied to a mast. Hey, it's better than giving in. It's better than death. But there's a better way. There's another story from ancient Greek mythology of Jason and the Argonauts. And instead of filling their ears with wax or tying themselves to the mast, what they do is they hire the famous musician Orpheus to come and play on his beautiful harp as they pass the island of the Sirens. And as they pass the Siren Island, they don't hear the song of the Sirens whatsoever. They just hear Orpheus's beautiful music on his harp, and they're delighted in that. So they feel no need to turn. It's as if the Sirens aren't even there, and they continue on their journey. And my friends, that is what it's like when you see God's generosity clearly before you. If you can turn your eyes and your ears to hear his voice, to let him bring you forward with the word of truth, by examining your scriptures, by singing praises, singing the Psalms, by singing all the days of your life as you come to church each week and you're recalibrated to your first love and you're reminded of who he is. This is how our hearts remain on course. The song of God is more powerful than any song of your own desire. Will you listen to it? Will you hear it? Will you hear it? Each week, we're reminded of these great truths and we're brought forward back to the God who loves us because we get to enjoy the first fruits. And in a similar way, we practice a meal because. Heaven is described as a place with feasting. And today we enjoy the first fruits of that feast. It's almost like the appetizers of the kingdom that is to come. And we're reminded that God is generous with us. He's so generous with us, he has sent his one and only son to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Christ took a loaf of bread and he tore it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And when we do this, when we take of this meal, we're reminded of his death and resurrection for us. The fact that our sins deserve the wrath of God, but that wrath was poured out on Christ himself. And so he is generous with us. Father, we pray that our hearts will be ready to receive this meal, that we'll be reminded of the eternal promises that you've given to us in Christ, that you have been sufficient for each and every task. And God, we pray that as we, we take these, this meal that, meal, that you will help us to fight temptation, 
that you will remind us that we are not alone, but that we are near to you because of what Christ has done for us. And God, we pray that uh, you, will, you will help us to resist these things and to delight in you, that your song will sing over us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.